Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, George Miranda, at GMiranda23 on Twitter. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what it takes to entirely own the code that you write, from design to development to production, and then eventually retiring that software. But rather than discussing this from a theoretical perspective, we're going to dive a little bit deeper by talking about practical experience and dealing with real challenges that teams experience when shifting to this kind of full-service ownership model. To do that, we're joined in studio today by Leandro Pinto, VP of Engineering at Message Group. Leandro has been deep in the midst of working with teams who've made the shift to owning their services in production. That model of full-service ownership is one of the manifestations of DevOps, and it's something that we've started talking about a couple of episodes ago. So today, we're going to explore what happens once teams actually make that shift. So thanks for joining us today, Leandro. Uh, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about who you are? Yeah, thanks, George, for the for the quick uh, introduction. And uh, I always have trouble, to be honest, to introduce myself. Uh, but I think the best way is like, I am a software engineer. That's where I started my career. And that's also where my passion is. And throughout my career, I have grew into leadership, of course, to manage uh, engineering teams and help them through like, different phases of uh, the life cycle of uh, development. And uh, I went the other, a lot of people go, uh, I started from the production environment and uh, end up become more like engineers and software engineers from one side, but like my career went the other way around, starting from an engineer, but also going my way to production and helping the teams to actually build and scaling systems, bringing this idea of how you bring the business mindset to, uh, to how you manage software in production. That's great. I'm actually really excited about this because I think one of the things that we share is that that same sort of background. We were both engineers for a long time, and I think we've grown into roles that, one, connect us a little bit more to the overall business value of what we're doing. And two, I think there's a lot of coaching and development involved, which when you're making a transition like this is definitely needed. So thank you for that intro. Um, I thought that was actually really good. I don't think you have a problem introing yourself at all. That was great. Okay. <laughs> so tell tell us a little bit about MessageBird. Tell our audience who MessageBird is and a little bit about what the company does. Yeah. Okay. So MessageBird is like, in the essence, a communication uh, platform. But right? anyway, what we have been trying to do is just reduce the friction in between like communication from between customers and their business, right? We In our API, we, we provide different channels, right? We think about... Uh, main channels like SMS uh, and voice, uh, for example. But if we look into our propositions, mostly to indeed reduce this friction when, when you are actually trying to solve a problem, right? Or talking to a business, uh, that's where we enter. And that's also where we connect to the, like, why availability and performance, for example, is a key element for what we try to deliver to our customer. Because always when you have friction is where those things become also very uh, very important for uh, uh, for you. Great. So that sort of leads to the topic of today's show, which is setting up a, a model of full service ownership for your teams. And I think you touched on a lot of reasons that's important. So why don't we start first with 
hearing how you describe that model of full service ownership that you've been trying to implement at MessageWord. What is that all about? Okay, the way I, I see it, and it's very close, to be honest, to what you and, uh, and the PagerDuty team has put into the uh, full service ownership ops guide, right? It's basically giving the full ownership of a system to a single team, right? Which not only include feature-related ownership, but also how you bring your features to production and how you run your systems. Another way I also like to put it is like giving the ownership of both functional and non-functional aspects of an application to a single team, right? If you think about product features from like delivering feature to the customer, but also non-functional like, again, availability, performance, and also security, right? All of this should goes into the ownership of a uh, of the sing- of a single team. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think there are a number of, uh, as you put it, non-functional uh, responsibilities that that absolutely belong with folks that are thinking about you know, sort of everything that it takes to run um, software in production. So, with that, right? What's one common myth or misconception about that sort of model that you'd like to debunk for our listeners? I have to be honest, I've been already discussed it a lot, but I just want to give a little bit of a different twist to it, which have been on-call. And I know in previous episodes, we talked a lot about being on-call and developers being on-call. And I want to take from two sides. One, you hear a lot of people saying, uh, oh, but developers don't want to be on-call. And that's a, like, the first side that I wanted to debunk you would be surprised of how much people actually will step up and take the ownership when you give them the responsibility of such call it like full service ownership. But people will take on that responsibility and they will actually go the extra mile to actually deliver this ownership, which include being, uh, being on call for the service that they, uh, that they build. And this, of course, includes the developer and the engineers in the, uh, in the team. And the other side that I honestly also want to, uh, to bring uh, to the discussion is that, to be honest, nobody likes to be <laughs> on call, right? I am on call. I don't like to be on call, right? But I do it because it's part of our, like, it's an expectation that we need to create for, also for engineers. It's like there is a reason why when you look back to more traditional uh, operations, those people, it's not that they like it to be on call, but we created the expectation that they would need to be on call. And that's also where I see when we start introducing things like full service ownership, we will also start to drive the industry in a way that this starts to become something that is also expected from engineers instead of always falling back to the fact that people don't like uh, to be on call. <laughs> yeah, That's how I'd like to, uh, to see it. That's 100% true. Um, I, so I, I got to tell you, when I... I, I spent about 15 years of my career as an infrastructure engineer on call that entire time. And I think back then I used to see it as sort of just really disruptive. I, for a number of reasons, on call was managed horribly, horribly in my organization many, many years ago. Um, I think we have better, more humane ways of doing that now. And now, actually, when I do find myself on call, the thing that I see myself doing is creating a little bit of space and time. Like this is the time when I'm just going to stick around and not really make plans in case something occurs. And the beauty of that is that when my on-call shift is over, okay, great, like I'm done. 
and yeah. I can move on and it's somebody else's responsibility and it's very clearly defined. And unlike earlier times in my career when I felt I was always on call, now just having this, you know, brief time when this is my specific defined duty during these hours and when it's not, great, somebody else can take it, makes it way more manageable. Um, and then I'll also add, yeah. I believe that when you are on call, you're right. It does alert you to things that you might not have seen in your day-to-day responsibility if you're not on the front lines of dealing with things that go wrong. So there's a big educational component that I think I've when I, you know, I think people don't like on call because it's managed poorly and it can be inhumane, but if you do it right, it leads to all the things exactly that you're talking about. Indeed. And to your point about being more human, I think that's also what we have been trying to uh, to do a lot, and I have been one of the like really pushing for for this internally, right? Of like, how can we make this to like actually be manageable to everyone? Like, everybody has their private life, right? That you need to be able to to like have, even if when you are on call, right? So let's respect each other. Let's help each other when you're in an on call. You need to have someone to override your shift for some reason. Let's help each other. And let's let's bring this and work this as a team. Uh, yeah, no, when, you know, trying to work as a team in those ways is super important. And part of the reason that I wanted to have this discussion with you is I think uh, we're, we're both at a very interesting intersection. So I think for most of our careers, we've both been responsible for operating software in production um, in different ways. Right? And, you know, you're, you're dealing with sort of making the shift to this full service ownership model at, at MessageBird. So I, I wanted to really get your take, you know, from that pragmatic, practical viewpoint. Um, what are what are some of the things that 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 change of operating model? What are some of the things that that change really introduces that teams tend to struggle with? Like, what's what's been hardest for you? Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because I have seen, as you said, I, with the experience, you see both sides, right? I have seen traditional ops and more like people who are responsible for the production environment while developers are only dealing with like building software, right? And one of the struggles that I see like looking from this and compared to like this model of uh, full service ownership is more like it's unavoidable that things will fall through the cracks, right? Especially if you look into the full journey of a specific like feature of your application, right? There is not really clear ownership who owns like performance, right? And how some of the aspects of the things that you do can actually be improved. If instead of you only look into your software, you also look into your production environment, right? And that's one of the big changes that I see. If you actually have your developers who also understand your production environment, they will also come up with different solutions for problems that if you don't have it owned by the same team, they won't be able to come up with some uh, some of the same uh, same solutions, right? And that's one of the biggest difference that I uh, that I see from more traditional models to this one that we are discussing today. I have a specific question for you about this, actually. Yeah. So, because you're right, you're you're shifting a number of responsibilities. There's only so much that people can do. Right? There's only yeah. so much capacity, and I hate talking about people in terms of capacity because people aren't resources, yeah. but there's only so much that, that you can handle as a person. right? And so when you have this team yeah. that traditionally was responsible 
you know, for, for more parts of software development and you start changing these responsibilities and roles and duties, when you're talking about things slipping through the cracks, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have to hire a whole new set of people or like double the size of your team? Or what happens to some of those things that get moved around? Do they just go away? Do people do more than they were doing before? How does, how does that pan out? Yeah, I think that's that's actually an interesting uh, question indeed because I want to, I'm not sure if I'm going to answer your question directly, but there's actually something that is actually quite important to bring into the, into the mix of our conversation. It's like one of the things that I have seen moving like in the industry and that today it makes much easier or actually the entry level for a full service ownership is much lower is because of the technology that we that we, that we have available for us today, right? And it's I, I, it's very challenging for a organization who are still like running their, for example, running all their stack in like bare metal or directly on VMs. Actually, if you compare them to organizations like us that are running their infrastructure in more modern environments like Kubernetes and in the cloud, right? You get this skill gap much like smaller. Right, and then like the things that would potentially fall through the cracks or not be properly managed by any of the sites today, it, like it gets more manageable, right? Because now the the level of abstraction also for the teams is much higher, right? And that's where like where I see that yes, I agree with you from the side of like that is just how much uh, a team can uh, uh, can handle. But there is also a lot of progress that we made in terms of technology that we actually abstract a lot of the complexity of running, for example, of running software in production. And basically, the way we uh, we do it at Message, but we still do have a what we call a, a platform team that is more like knowledgeable on like the internals of Kubernetes or more like network related uh, uh, stuff, right? And you need some people which also bring this level of of skills, right, of expertise. But what we also did, we also invest a lot on trainings for our like product development teams, also to upskill them in a in the production environment, like as I said, like Kubernetes and other like more production oriented technologies, right? And you have uh, you don't have uh, instead of having a gap, you have a little bit of intersection in their knowledge uh, that we also bridge a little bit of the gap in between the what we now today call the platform teams and also the, the product development teams. So I don't know if I answered your question directly, but uh, just twisted a little bit. Uh, I think you did. I think you did. So, I mean, what it sounds like is, and this is something that, you know, in a, in a former lifetime, I guess still in this current lifetime, I was dealing a lot with uh, CICD pipelines and introducing a lot of automation. And the idea was that by you know, leveraging tools that we had to do a lot of the tasks that would normally consume our time. We used to frame that as it frees teams up to be able to innovate, right? Like that's what you do with that extra time. And it sounds like in this, what you're doing is you're innovating the team structure and how we work, right? And trying to figure out how we shift that around. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's absolutely important. I think you you touched on a key thing there, which is that change in tooling. Like it's not about always about tools, but depending on on you know the abstraction layers that you're using the ways that you open up the ways that you open up time and responsibilities um, are absolutely sort of like where things go so it's not really falling through the cracks 
let me ask you though, right? So when you make this shift, whether it's tools and whether it's you know platform abstraction or learning Kubernetes, what are some of the more challenging things, or what are some of the easier things, both of those, that you see your teams struggling with internally or just like absolutely loving and doing very easily? Yeah, I guess like going back to, to what we were discussing, I guess definitely the, one of the challenges, like indeed most of the engineers, they will have more of a like development background, right? Even though a lot of them actually enjoy a lot and will actually take the challenge with like very quickly to really embrace the all the production environment. There is a little bit of a initial gap, especially when we you get people that don't have this kind of experience uh, in the past, right? As also what I mentioned, like we have been investing a lot on upskilling the team and training, especially for the production environment, but also talking a little bit more openly about being on call, right? And why this is important for them. We have uh, our onboarding teams at MessageBird, for example, you are basically, you are on call from day one, right? Just so you start to feel a little bit, what does this mean? Right? How does this change? And like also embracing this the idea of the responsibility from uh, and accountability from uh, from day one, right? But also if you look into the what makes things easier is indeed like the the closeness that you have from the business in your development teams and how to actually get to the bottom of different issues or solve different problems that you wouldn't be able to if you don't if you didn't have the full scope of ownership of your uh, of your service, right? I guess it brings also, people closer to the like to the punchline in terms of solving problems that you have in your day to day, in a way that by suffering from the problem, you you also be like motivated to solve the issues uh, yourself. So let me ask you: Do you think that suffering at the end of the day, like, does that make life better for your engineering teams, or does it make it worse? No, it makes like in the beginning, it might feel that it's worse, but it will make it better in the long term. One of the problems that, and the reason I say that, one of the problems that we have, we had in the past, and it's also very common, you can see a lot of described in uh, in different like blog posts or books is like amount of alerts, right? Or being waking up in the middle of the night, but a critical alert that was not supposed to be a critical alert. And you see this kind of discussions arising in the teams, right? Hey, why is this is this alert uh, firing? And like people challenging each other because they are, again, as I said, in the front line, actually receiving that alert and actually being a little bit penalized by them in the first, or facing that issue. And then they will be motivated to solve the problem themselves, right? So the short term, yes, you suffer a little bit from it, but in the long run, I actually believe that this actually helps us to build more like reliable software that we can trust. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. So for our listeners, I want to say full disclosure. So Leandro, you reached out to me about recording an episode of Page It to the Limit um, because you'd heard the podcast and the things that you were discussing. Um, but you also reached out to me as a, as a PagerDuty customer. And you're doing very interesting things in terms of how you're restructuring your teams, but I think you know how you manage alerting is part of that. So let's talk about that for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in terms of alerting to help drive some of these practices? Yeah. So basically, one of the changes that we are doing is how we actually structure our own call, uh, for example, right? We have been structuring in the past a lot based on the escalation policies and in the team's structure, right? 
But then this like this creates a lot of overlap of, for example, which services are actually alerting more or which services are actually generating more of the false uh, positives. And then we are restructuring this to actually put the services at the center, right? And actually have our own conversations and escalations based on the services itself and who owns the service other than actually reflecting our organization, right? And then, of course, we will have we have a connection in between who owns a specific service together with all the other descriptions for the services. But we want to make sure that we we are able to actually get the insights for alerts and how we manage them, how are we getting this at which time, when, who, who gets... Uh, gets alerted to also give us a good understanding of the health of our systems and where we should put uh, effort on to solve potential issues that we might might have both for the people but also for the uh, for the systems that's a really interesting view of using service definition rather than the shape of your organization to set up structures for who's going to be notified when i think that's a that's a really important concept that makes one you know just your, your general overall management structure is much more modular and easy to manage. But two, it makes it much more likely that you're going to find the right person to respond or the right team to respond when you need them to respond. Um, on that note, when we were talking about this um, and what you were doing at MessageBird, you mentioned a specific tool that you were using in order to, to bring people closer to an incident. Can you tell us about what you were using? Yeah, so that's a that's a little bit of a a baby for us because we love this uh, this internal tool that we that we have, and it's basically for someone to be able to start an incident and actually trigger our incident response process very easy, right? So we have a, a integration with uh, one of our, the the internal communication tool that we uh, that we use that it makes you very easily again to just trigger an incident and engage the right people to help you with a specific instant. And this is not a, one person in specific that do this, it's actually the teams who can start instants. And that actually connects very closely to what we have discussed, we have been discussing today. That is like, okay, people have the ownership not only for like developing, but also dealing with issues in production when they, uh, when they arise, right? So when we start an instant, it actually automates or it engages an instant manager Right, but it also already created a ticket in our issue tracking uh, tool that actually will help us to follow up in the instant after. It creates a document that will help you to take the notes during the instant. But also, what it does actually also is also put people in a mindset that actually make them feel that we are creating an environment that they can also learn from the failures that we have. Right, they actually embrace the whole idea of like blameless culture and dealing with incidents, which also it's important for the teams to actually have this in their uh, in their day to day and how we actually operate the systems. Yeah, that's that's 100% spot on. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot at PagerDuty, having anybody be able to trigger the major incident response process is very important for just making it accessible, for saving time, for really you know, ensuring resiliency of your services. And you touched on a, like a number of great things there. But the one thing I'm going to point out is that the particular tool that you're talking about is a Slack integration. We use Slack at PagerDuty quite a bit. Yeah, okay. And we have a Slack bot that we use internally that's very customized to our needs. So I'd love to put a link to the repo for the tool that you're talking about in our show notes 
so that folks can check it out and see how you're doing it as another example of ways that you can build that yourself. Yeah, 100%. And that you also see code from myself there. That is also my hobby. Nice. <laughs> um, so let's, let's switch gears a little bit. So you, you've been at this for a while at MessageBird. How did this start? Is it something that in, you know, organically certain teams decided we're going to restructure this way? Have you been getting support from the business? Like, how's that journey going or where, where, where are you? Well, honestly, like, I have to say this, this definitely grew organically. Right, it's more the way we seen that for us to be successful. Also, as a like a scale up, we would need to adopt this kind of uh, approach for how we deal with with our services. Right, and one of the things that I also have been doing a lot is more try bring the awareness that we are we are actually doing this and we are doing this with intention, right? And actually adopt a lot of the ideas around this and bring this again this awareness to the teams itself. Also. That in the future they don't expect that this this won't be part of their responsibility anymore, but also that we take most of the benefits of having this model. And one of the parts that there is definitely a lot of contributions from the business is definitely on like, for example, SLO, defining the expectations, right? What is like expected from uh, from the systems and from the teams, and how we want the again from availability and also all the non-functional aspects of an application where. How can we bring this transparency to the teams of what is expected also from them on that side? And that's where we have been trying also to bring the, the business there, right? But also with the product managers, right, in the teams, also make sure that we are prioritizing properly work that needs to be done from a reliability or performance perspective, right? Because this is also something that we could also make a little bit of a myth is that product features will always be prioritized on top of reliability and availability and that's something that you always need to make very clear to the uh, to the business and the product teams and we have been able to find a very good balance there also because our like product teams also embrace this idea very uh, to their like embrace their to their heart as well so this has been very like important for uh, for us yeah i think there's something to having your product teams or your product owners embedded with your software development teams and your service owners running this in production, it brings them a little bit closer to understanding pain points for the team and just general availability. And as you describe, like sort of non-functional features of your software and its availability, as well as having that balance with the business in terms of balancing innovation and new features. And, and just, you know, that that it's a very difficult dance. And I don't think ever anyone ever gets it completely right. But just having that closeness on both sides is absolutely essential. Yeah, definitely. This has been a really great chat. But as we're getting close to the end of our time, Leandro, are there any other bits of advice that you would have for teams that are thinking about restructuring in these ways? I think it's a little bit more general, right? And I think initially this idea might sound scary, especially when we talk from a like skills gaps perspective or like a question that I always hear is like, oh, but do you really think that developers can run and own uh, services in, uh, in production? And what I always say is like, honestly, software engineers, they have the foundation that is needed for this to actually be successful, right? The foundation is there. It's just like more on top that they need to learn and the skills that they need to, to acquire. But most of them are very eager to actually do this uh, step and take the extra level of ownership and, uh, and responsibility. I understand how this feels uh, scary at, uh, at the beginning, 
But in the long run, it pays off both from a business perspective, but also from a career and motivation for your people, right? So that's a little bit also a light that I want to just uh, put into, into the mix. Yeah, and that absolutely makes sense. And it, it's interesting to hear you say that now, because I feel like there's been a couple of waves of DevOps. And I think in the early days, what we saw a lot of was ops that were learning development, right? And I feel like that is sort of where this movement got started. And, and I think within the last couple of years, we've really seen the other side of that divide, which is now really focusing on software developers and teaching them those operational skills. But it's really weird that it went in that order. So I 100% echo your advice. I think it's it's interesting that that's where we are now. Agreed. <laughs> All right. So if you've uh, found this interesting, uh, Leandro, you mentioned the PagerDuty Full Service Ownership Ops Guide. That's available at ownership.pagerduty.com if you're interested. Um, there's a Page It to the Limit episode, uh, episode eight, where we discussed what that guide is. So if you're interested in checking that out a little bit more, I highly suggest you listening to that episode. So, Leandro, there are two questions that we ask guests on this show. And the first is, what's one thing that you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? It's, it's definitely that it's okay to make mistakes. Right? I think that it's even though it is a, like, something that has been very stressed in the last years about like blameless postmortems and dealing with incidents, I would definitely have, I would benefit of knowing this sooner, right? And also that you don't have 100% uptime, right? You don't, it's impossible to deliver that. I would definitely be, uh, again, I would definitely benefit of having this kind of insight sooner in my, uh, in my career, uh, to be honest. Those are two things we could absolutely talk about more and we should on this show. So one, you're right. There's no such thing as 100% uptime. Services are always failing even more so when they're yeah. distributed. And I think the new downtime is actually slow performance. So that's another can of worms that I'm not even going to open. But the other thing you touched on is psychological safety. And I think that is a vital component of being operating at being. The other thing you touched on is psychological safety, which I think is a vital component of being able to operate in these ways. And you're right. Your teams have to be able to make mistakes and learn without fear of retribution. There is a learning curve. We're changing the way that we work. We're changing levels of experience and exposure. So when those things occur, I think we need to see them as an opportunity to learn rather than, you know, just thinking it's a mistake that's unacceptable. So 100%, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of mistakes and fear of retribution, is there anything about running software in production that you're glad that we did not ask you about on this episode? Yeah, to be honest, I guess is that <laughs> what was the biggest mistake that I did? <laughs> so, since you brought it up, what is the biggest mistake that you made? No, I'm like this is a joke, but of course, I think as, uh, as especially if you step into leadership position, sometimes you you need to take a different approach in some of the decisions that you make. I did make decisions in the past where I decided to, for example, de-invest in some of the uh, some critical systems that we have, like move people from a team to another one, just thinking like, okay, this system is fine for now, but then of course, two years later, it blew up in my face, right? So this is also interesting from a, not only from a production and running systems in, in production, but more how you lead teams uh, that actually 
run systems in production, right? And how you actually make sure that they do have the right level of bandwidth, as you mentioned at the beginning, like capacity, right? Do they actually have the right level of like manpower, let's say like this, to actually like, deal with the, the, the systems that they own, given us the level of criticality that they actually have for your for your business, right? And I did make this kind of mistake in the past, but I did learn from them. Right, so I'm very critical these days on how we actually, even though systems are actually performing in production, that we move people to different teams or move uh, the focus of the teams. Because if something is actually running okay today, it doesn't mean that it will run one month from now. Right? Especially if we are like, dealing with high growth of traffic and all of those things. Right, So that's definitely something that I'm glad you didn't ask. <laughs> So I, I think, you know, uh, those lessons in figuring out where to make investments that comes with experience and figuring out, you know, how we manage these things over time. I'll tell you, since you shared early in my career, I made a really bad decision around how we invested in our backup strategy. Um, and we relied a lot on tapes that were very faulty. This is how long ago that was. We used to use tapes for backup. <laughs> And I did not know that our that we had two bad tapes in a rotation of six that needed to be used for backup of a data warehouse. We experienced a disk failure on that data warehouse, and we lost about four weeks of data that took us about 12 weeks to reprocess. So it happens. We all make those mistakes. We learn the hard way. And we're just lucky when we use those as experiences that we can learn from rather than uh, events where somebody can get fired. So yeah, 100% hear that. So Leandro, thank you very much. This has been a great discussion. Um, I feel like we could keep this discussion going and there's a lot of practical experience that you have when it comes to restructuring these teams. So for our listeners, if folks want to reach out or they have questions, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can also reach out to me via via Twitter. Uh, my account is Leandro SHP. So I'll be glad to also answer and keep up the discussions ongoing from there. Excellent. And we'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. Uh, Leandro, so thank you again for being here. This has been a wonderful discussion. And uh, I'd love to continue this again at some point. Yeah, thank you very much for also having me as a guest. Well, thanks for being here. And again, this is George Miranda wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at page it to the limit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs> <laughs>